Now entering Nerdist.com. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 23, A Taste of Armageddon. Welcome, dear listeners. Please do as you are told and step peacefully into the listening chamber for another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. This won't hurt a bit. That's right. The computer has determined that it is your turn to join us as we dive into the morals and ethics of the Star Trek universe one episode at a time. Lucky you. Today, we've got a delicious tidbit for your dining pleasure. A taste of Armageddon. That's, you know, and that's good, because really a, a taste is about all I can... Oh, I just, I couldn't possibly. <laughs> yeah, no, you, you don't want to uh, overfill an Armageddon. We're uh, 23 episodes in, but do you think we should tell people who we are? Should we? <laughs> I'm Ken Ray, uh, one of the people who does the whole Star Trek thing, uh, Mission Log thing, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast thing. And uh, over there, wherever over there happens to be... I'm John Champion. Yeah, I'm okay. the other Mission Log guy. <laughs> one one of, yes, and then there are the behind-the-scenes guys and the little people that we would like to thank if we ever actually get an award for doing something like this. Right. <laughs> hey, haven't we recently faced a uh, an alt-controlling uh, computer-driving society? Um, you know, where, oh, I don't know, maybe humans or people are serving only at the will of the computer. Haven't we just seen this not that long ago? Do you mean on Star Trek? Yes. Oh. (laughs) I I, I don't mean in your living room. I I mean in Star Trek. I think we did. Well, you know, I kind of don't want to say. I kind of don't want to say. I mean, yeah, we did that in Return of the Archons. Um, Archons 2, Electric Boogaloo. I think that it was the original (laughs) title. A lot of people don't know that, but it's true. Um, Except for the part where it's true. See, I don't know that the computer is actually in control here, but we can get to that in a second. But before we get to anything, we always want to let people know that they can always get in touch with us. If it's the middle of the night and you're thinking, I'm not sure I agree with what John and Ken said. Or maybe it's the middle of the night and you're thinking, I wholeheartedly agree with what John and Ken said. Either way, you want to let us know. So many different ways that you can do that. Um, Mission Log Pod applies to a lot of them. That's our that's our handle on Facebook. That is our handle on Skype. That is our handle on Twitter. So, you know, do the whole, like, you know, facebook.com slash Mission Log Pod or Mission Log Pod on Skype or at Mission Log Pod on Twitter. Or you can just call us if you want to. Just, you know, forget the whole text thing. Uh, 323-522-5641, 323-522-5641. You can email us if you want to go back to the text thing, missionlog at roddenberry.com, missionlog at roddenberry.com. And don't forget to check out our super swanky website, missionlogpodcast.com. Uh, no place to leave comments there, but any of those other places you can. And as always, we might, we might, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Also, try to remember that our egos are very fragile. Yeah, ridiculously um, fragile. Please. In fact, somebody's thinking something bad about me right now, and already I've got a little tear inside. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm like that, yeah. dude. My ego is very fragile. In fact, I'm, I'm sort of insulted that you think yours might be more than mine. 
<laughs> hey, we actually we have gotten some great comments over the last uh, several episodes. They're going to start making their way not only into our episodes but our supplementals as well. And uh, I love interacting with people on Twitter and Facebook. So thank you so much, everybody who has participated up until now, and uh, will continue to chime in. We really, really love to hear what you have to say, and I know what you love to hear, Ken. You know what I love to hear, John. I know that you love to hear. Star Trek trivia. You know I love to hear Star Trek trivia. <laughs> all right. Just a couple of tiny points on this one. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, hey, I'm so glad we have finally reached this point. It only took us 23 episodes to get there. But name check, United Federation of Planets. Hello. Now we can order the T-shirts. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> now that we know we're going to call this thing. Yeah, we're, we're no longer flying blind here looking at the United Planet Earth space agency of probes <laughs> i i purposely convoluted that space central you take a back seat now to the united federation of planets yeah, yeah. we're very happy about that um also i wanted to point out um and we'll talk about kind of our judgment call on the episode later but um spoiler alert i like the writing in this one so i wanted to give a shout out to robert hammer um and i think what's cool is that he has written for just about everything um, TV. And when I say everything, I mean, of course, the critical science fiction TV shows of the 60s and 70s, Voyage of the Bottom of the Sea, Time Tunnel, Lost in Space, uh, Planet of the Apes, Mission Impossible. So some really, really cool stuff. He was a career TV man and had a big, big hand in uh, some science fiction that certainly I was a fan of. Just so I'm clear, uh, Planet of the Apes, uh, any of the movies or the TV sh- series? Uh, I'm talking TV show. Okay. TV okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, that's cool. Uh, yeah. And you've got a little call out here in trivia for a guest star in well, this episode. Well, one of my favorite things, and I feel bad because I didn't look up all of the actors on the show, but I mean, one of my favorite things is uh, when you see an actor or actress on Star Trek and you're like, hey, I know who that is. That's, you know, XYZ. Uh, Barbara Babcock. Um, who plays Maya 3 on this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, immediately I saw her, I was like, oh, Hill Street Blues, because she played Grace Gardner on Hill Street Blues. Now, she's been in a lot of other stuff, too. She was in Space Cowboys a few years ago. Oh, um, yeah. Sadly, she was also in Home Alone 4. Aww. I know, it kind of makes me sad, but, you know, at least she's working. That's something, right? <laughs> right. Um, but back in the day, Maya 3, Maya just say, yowza. <laughs> She reminded me of uh, she reminded me of the uh, of the female robot whose name I can't remember now. And um, what are little girls made of? As far as like the outfit and such. Oh yeah, well the, yeah. of course Sherry Jackson uh, starring in uh, what are little girls made of? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I and I will I would go on to say uh, to the costume designer, thank you, sir. May I have another? <laughs> it's going to be that kind of show, isn't it? Puntastic. All right. Hey, by the way, speaking of actors in this, uh, one little bit here that uh, I thought I'd make you aware of. I remember in The Cage, we did not have Dr. McCoy, but instead we had Dr. Boyce, right? Yes, yes. Okay. So the actor in this who plays Anon Seven, and I'm going to butcher the name. Bear with me. It's uh, David Opatosho. Oh, oh, ah, gosh. Opatoshu. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Uh, he was actually considered for the role of Dr. Boyce. 
Okay. I yeah. thought you were going to say it was the same guy, and I was like, well, that is just amazing makeup because they don't look <laughs> anything alike. But let me get this straight. You're telling me that the guy who plays a one-shot on one episode of Star Trek was considered for a role on another episode of Star Trek that actually never got picked up. Right. Well, it could have. Hey, could oh, have. Oh, God. You go deep, my in friend. A, in, in a parallel universe, it could have been all about Dr. Boyce. You don't know. <laughs> In a parallel universe, who could have played what now? In a parallel universe, I'd be the one recapping the episodes for you, though it would still probably go a little something like this. Prologue. The Enterprise is on a diplomatic mission carrying Ambassador Robert Fox to Aminiar 7. When they arrive, it's code 710, which means stay away. Well, this could be a really short episode, but Ambassador Fox tells Kirk to stay put. We're parking the ship right on their front doorstep. Act 1. The last ship that was here, the USS Valiant, failed to return from Iminiar 7 50 years ago when the planet was at war with its neighbor. But we won't let that detail stop us from going in for a visit. Kirk, Spock, and a couple of other crewmen beam down to look around, leaving Scotty in charge. Iminiar 7 is not a bad place at all. Architecturally stunning, clean, attractive residence. We could really get used to this place. Maya 3 is on hand to greet the landing party, but she tells them they are in danger. She introduces them to the High Council and one Anon 7. Anon 7 rejects the idea of opening diplomatic relations and tells Kirk that they have been at war for 500 years. Spock says, hold on just a moment. There's no sign of war here. Anon doubles down and says, oh yes, there is a war. We lose between one and three million people every year because of the skirmishes with our enemy planet, Vendikar. No time to debate, though. An attack is coming in now. The city has been hit. But wait, there's nothing going on. No destruction, no radiation, no explosion. Kirk has no idea what is happening. Spock figures it out, though. The war is being waged by computers. The buildings and civilizations survive, but the people who are casualties voluntarily step into disintegration machines. Oh, and by the way, that computer war made the Enterprise a casualty, which means the entire crew on board is dead. Theoretically, they need to show up for disintegration. Act 2. The landing party are held as prisoners, while Anand figures out what to do about all the casualties from this virtual war. On board the Enterprise, Scotty is radioed by Kirk, who says, Hey, guess what? This place is great. Start sending down the entire crew for shore leave. Except, uh, well, that wasn't Kirk. It was Anand laying a trap, but Scotty has already figured out this ruse, and he has the Enterprise computer verify his suspicion. There's not going to be a shore leave on his watch. Back in the holding area, Spock busts out with a new trick. He uses a Vulcan mind meld to essentially hypnotize the guard who is standing outside their door to turn around and unlock their room. Kirk makes short work of the guy, knocking him out to then steal his disruptor weapon. The landing party make a break for it and walk down a corridor to witness some of the locals in line for this uh, disintegration machine. It's kind of like waiting in line at Starbucks, but with less coffee and more disintegration. Maya 3 is headed there, too, but Kirk stops her. Spock acquires another hand weapon from a guard, and Kirk wipes out the disintegration machine. Word gets back to the High Council, and Anon is none too pleased. He's fed up enough that he orders the planet's real weapons to open fire on the Enterprise. Act 3. Scotty had been just suspicious enough 
that he had the ship's deflectors turned on. That weapon fire from Iminiar bounces off, but now there's a little more worry that Kirk and the landing party are actually in trouble. Scotty is planning a counterattack when Ambassador Fox shows up and says there will be no such thing. Back on the surface, a landing party takes refuge in their old holding room, but they've got weapons now, a communicator, and a couple of uniforms worn by the locals. Maya is with them, and Kirk tries to reason with her. Fox, meanwhile, has contacted the Aminiar High Council, and Anand spins quite the yarn about the accident in attacking the Enterprise. Everything is just fine now. In fact, the ambassador should come down and have a look around for himself. See? That's how you do diplomacy. Scotty is not impressed, though. He hasn't heard from the captain, and he's not about to start taking orders from Fox. He's going to keep the ship on alert, just in case. Kirk sneaks into Anand's quarters and holds the councilman at the point of a disruptor. Reason and debate about their form of waging war wears on Kirk's patience. He wants his communicators back, and he threatens that he will single-handedly take down this planet if he has to. That's some big talk, but the guards waiting outside of Anand's door knock out Kirk. Act 4. Welcome to the surface of a mini-R7, Ambassador Fox. Sorry you won't be able to stay. We're leading you right to one of our lovely disintegration chambers. Spock gets the stolen Aminiar communicator to work well enough to contact Scotty just in time to learn that Fox has in fact beamed down. Spock leads a rescue mission to liberate the ambassador and in the process destroys another one of those disintegration chambers. Kirk is in the council chamber and he is being lectured by Anon about the rules of warfare. It is imperative that real casualties be recorded or else war, real war, may break out with Vendikar, the worst possible outcome. The prospect of actual combat really freaks out Anon. He contacts the Enterprise to demand that the crew start beaming down or else all the hostages will be killed. Kirk leaps up and yells for Scotty to carry out General Order 24 in two hours. Want to know what that order is? That's the order for the Enterprise to give Aminiar all she's got in the weapons department. That'll ruin Anand's day, along with the entire rest of the population of the planet. We sure hate to know what the other 23 orders are. Scotty confirms the order in an announcement to the Council, and Kirk finds his moment of distraction as a good time to steal a weapon from one of the guards. At that moment, Spock shows up, and the two carry out their plan to destroy the Aminiar war computers. Kirk tells Anand that real war is now on the table, but there is an alternative. They can start planning for peace instead by contacting Vindicar. Fox volunteers to stay behind and help. Safe back on board the Enterprise, we learn that Ambassador Fox is working on negotiating peace, and Spock is a little surprised at the size of the risk Kirk took. Kirk explains that he took a calculated risk, that they stood a greater chance of survival by facing the reality of the horror of war. Yeah. <laughs> we, are we done? <laughs> no, no. There, there's just some interesting things that happened in this uh, in this episode, but that's the whole rest of the story. I'm sorry. I'm just. I'm sort of. I'm. I'm prepping, and I know I yeah. should have been prepared already, but now I'm prepping. Well, you know. By the way, just in terms of the minor things we like to point out, hey, we we get to welcome back another stuffy Starfleet official who just seemingly has no clue. What's up about how things really work? But there was there was there was Ferris in um, Galileo Seven. Yep. And now, yeah, we have now we have Ambassador Fox, and it's yeah. like it's like first of all, like apparently Ambassador is just a job. 
He just does that, you know, when he has to. But when he's on board the Enterprise, total jerk. Yeah. Start to finish. There is not a second of, well, I think your your position is interesting, Captain Kirk, but how about this instead? No, it's just like, I'm the boss of you, dude. I mean, that's yeah. pretty much Ambassador Fox all the way through the episode, you know, until he is about to be uh, turned into some sort of powdery substance. Yeah. So in the future, 300 years from now, plenty of clueless bureaucrats to go around. Yeah. I'm reminded of that uh, Saturday Night Live sketch years and years and years ago. Dan Aykroyd was uh, – it was like a late-night infomercial for how to become a U.S. ambassador. And then the most important item was learning how to say, please pass the sweet and sour shrimp in like 20 languages. <laughs> That's kind of funny. <laughs> it is. That's kind it of is. funny. You see, I'm actually reminded of uh, one of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy books when they – supposedly the Galga Frenchum was going to send uh, three arcs of people – they're going to send the really important people, and they're going to send the people who built the society, and then they're going to build the people in the middle, like the telephone sanitizers and mm. and people like that. Yeah. Ambassador Fox would be on the B arc. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, hey, hey, Ken, uh, do you remember Do you remember that thing that we introduced uh, not that long ago with Return of the Archons called the Prime Directive? Uh, yes. Oh, yeah. Okay. Sorry. It's not going to be around for this one either. <laughs> <laughs> That's really, that's really funny because I had this. I, I had almost the exact same thing written, except it was a, "Hey, remember the Prime Directive? Kirk doesn't." <laughs> right, right. Yeah, there, there are actually a few of those though that happened in this episode. Hey, remember the time Spock was ready to kill Gary Mitchell because he might become too powerful? Spock doesn't because they have this whole thing in this episode where Kirk is like, it's almost like he's taking Spock aside and saying. Now, we may have to kill people. I hope we don't, but I need you to understand. And I'm thinking, he totally understands. Remember when he was ordering weapons behind your back? He's the enforcer. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. Also, remember the time uh, Kirk was ready to blow up a whole ship full of retreating Gorn? Kirk doesn't. Oh, we may have to kill somebody. Like, it's a hardship for him. Please. Last time he was thinking about killing somebody, he couldn't think about anything else. Yeah, And then yeah. finally, uh, remember last week when Spock couldn't understand how the humans could admire Khan without approving of Khan? I, I love that bit, yeah. Spock yeah. doesn't because <laughs> he completely understands the killing machines. He doesn't agree with it, but he understands it. He doesn't approve, but he sort of admires. But he doesn't get when humans do that with other humans because, you know, well, they're humans and they're, you know, they're almost subhuman. Oh, no, sub-Vulcan. My bad. Right. Hey, um, as far as the Aminiar go with their war with Vendikar, um, Anand Seven says that for 500 years, they have been losing between one and three million people. That is ambitious or they breed like rabbits. I was going to say there could be rabbits on their flag. Yeah. That could actually <laughs> on their planetary flag. It could be like, yes, yeah. just, just one rabbit. That's a lot well, actually, of people. two rabbits. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, and uh, Kirk, I, I'm sorry, uh, Spock actually has a uh, he has a special power in this one. Now, we've introduced the idea of the mind bell. We kind of have an idea of what happens there. But in this, he's using it more like mind control. It's a little weird, a little creepy. Well, he says that um, Vulcanians have uh, a limited amount of, um, what is it, telepathy or mind control? Telepathy? Yeah. He says in the thing, they they kind of lost this, didn't they? Right, right. Good. Yeah, right. Because <laughs> otherwise, and I mean, it's neat and it works okay and it gets the guy through the door and it's played well and all that stuff. But I mean, really, at some point, Spock would just become like Dr. Manhattan. 
Like far yeah. far too powerful to actually. First of all, far too powerful to be second in command. Um, but second, really, I mean, that just makes the Vulcans, which I'm still going to call them, uh, that just makes the Vulcans far too powerful to deal with. It seems. Yeah. No, I, I agree. Yeah. Maybe that's why they are so full of repression. Um, but I tell you who's <laughs> not repressed, and that is Kirk when it comes to destroying computers. Yeah. Um, Love it. I, you know, I, but here's the thing. Like, if you are at an Apple store and you see Captain Kirk coming toward the Genius Bar with a problem, get away. <laughs> Step out of the store because it's probably going to end in phaser fire and explosions. It may well, yes. Well, especially if he's talking to somebody and they say, well, I'm, I'm sorry, sir. It says in the computer. Oh, does it? <laughs> right. Right. And, you know, we're back in this episode to the happy ending where we're all on the bridge and we kind of pose for the tableau, but it is a little less creepy. It's not the slap on the back and have an uncomfortable laugh kind of ending. It's more just the bookend to the show. So I'm I'm glad they were kind of we've gotten away from that a little bit here. There was a lot of um there was a lot of real humor. In this episode, actually, there's there's uh, the writer to, uh, to whom you gave props earlier, mm-hmm. um, please like a, a, like a decent amount of comedy without being over the top comedy. Like there's yeah, no, it, it there's, wasn't jokey. Yeah. Right. There's no like that kind of thing. But like when Spock, you know, comes in, like bursts in to save Kirk and he gets there and Kirk's actually got the whole room, by the way. There's that guy should never have been a guard. If Kirk can overpower him that easily, yeah, I know. Yeah, what well, you know what you do when you get a prisoner is walk really close to him, but don't pay attention to him. Yeah, you know? okay. So, <laughs> yeah. bad training on the part of the um, on the part of the. Um, oh, I can't remember. I keep thinking Vendicar, and I know that's not it. Uh, on, on the part of the security people from that planet, um, but then Spot comes in. He's like, "Oh, I thought you need help." Guess I was wrong. It's kind of cute. But actually, my favorite line is when he goes up. The first time that he goes up to distract one of the guards, he walks yep. up and says, Sir, there is a multi-legged creature crawling on your shoulder. Yes, yes. That's lovely. That's a, that's a lovely <laughs> little, great. like, it made me laugh. So, yeah. yeah, kind of fun there. Yeah, it was a great little Spockism. According to my podcast, Battle Simulator Program, Mission Log has become the number one show on the planet and on any planets humans settle in the future. Please, go ahead and send advertising dollars and other tribute based on this assumption. I'm actually going to do something a little bit different, and I'm going to start our topical discussion with a piece of listener mail. Um, Jake... Uh, wrote to us not that long ago and he was actually commenting on Arena but I thought his comment was so applicable to this episode A Taste of Armageddon that I wanted to share it with you now Um, he says I was listening to Mission Log on Arena and the idea you bring up on how killing someone from the seat of a ship is very different from killing someone up close and personal that thought reminded me of a TED talk recently about how civilization is constantly becoming safer because we are getting closer and closer to each other. Social media shows you the lives of millions of people in one click, and it's very hard to find the urge or the will to kill someone when you can see a picture of their apartment or their new cat. In Star Trek, there isn't an up-close and personal relationship with these other races, making it easier for us to hurt and kill and feel less guilt. The TED Talk goes on to explain many other factors about why we are safer and safer every year, but that one stuck with me. And that is from Jake 
for us. So thank you very much for writing that in. And thank you because that got me thinking about A Taste of Armageddon. Um, in A Taste of Armageddon, we have the opposite problem here. <laughs> we have the ease of killing uh, because of the heightened technology. Um, but there is this 500-year disconnect from the uh, the Vendicarans and the uh, Eminarians. I'm, I'm just going to screw up their name throughout the entire thing. <laughs> <laughs> that, that'll be my job here. Well, I couldn't even remember it a minute ago, so please mispronounce it. That's fine. Yeah, you got it. Eminar. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, that's um, that, that's one of the central ideas here in this show is that War has become a just another technological thing that we do. You know, it's yep. weird. The, the premise of that TED Talk, and I would actually like to hear it. So, mm. Jake, if you could maybe write back to us and tell us exactly which TED Talk it is. I mean, the one thing that's kind of odd about that, I mean, on the one hand, I think Jake is definitely right. On the other hand, we, we kill by remote control now. Mm-hmm. We've got drones that, that sort of do that. And, you know, so they're flying from way up high and they target something from way up high and they drop something from way up high. And the person pushing all those buttons and pulling those levers is hundreds of miles away. Right. Yeah. I mean, so yeah. on the one hand, you're right. I mean, we might lose our will to to conventional warfare the more we get to, you know, the more we get to see our supposed enemy, um, you know, uh, putting up kitten videos. But. Um, the technology side of it is is sort of I mean, it's, it's sort of like that's okay. All we need is a guy who you know can look at a building and say, oh well, that's a building that I need to destroy, as opposed to I need to kill the people inside that building. Mm-hmm. And I'll go home for dinner when I'm done. Yeah, well, and and that's the, the 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 separation that's happening here, and that's like you know why Kirk is so appalled at what's going on. The, the technology makes it too easy for all of this to happen. And they are completely removed from the horror of war. When I look at this episode, the the thing that just hits me over the head, and I'm sure it did to you as well, is that this is right at the escalation of the Vietnam War. And the, the Vietnam War was the first war that was presented into the living rooms of people all across, well, all across the world. But in, in the U.S., it was the first television war. Mm-hmm. And every single night, you would turn on the TV and the news w- would have not only images, but the statistics. So it's just sort of like one more thing that happened. And it just becomes statistics, which are kind of numbing, you know. And um, I-, I feel like this episode is, uh, you know, partly in response to that, that, a- again, the war is just sort of this mechanical thing that we go through that isn't necessarily... Um, isn't necessarily in our backyard anymore. Yes, except that we knew people. I mean, I wasn't alive, you know, mm. or, well, I, I guess the Vietnam War ended in 74. I was born in 1970, so I was alive for a little bit of it, but I wasn't conscious. My mom knew people in Vietnam, though. Mm-hmm. I mean, so, I mean, there's a, there, I mean, you're still not talking about quite the same thing. You're right. We sort of get numbed to... When it seems to me that this happened more, no letters, when this happened more was when uh, the Bush administration said that we were not going to uh, have photographs or videotape of the caskets returning home from the um, uh, Iraq war. Mm -hmm. Then it just became numbers. 
And the numbers were relatively small compared to the other numbers that we were hearing. And so that really sort of dehumanized it quite a bit, it seems to me. And then, of course, um, that policy eventually changed. Now, at that point, I think we were already sort of um, – I guess it wasn't just the Iraq war. It was actually uh, Afghanistan and Iraq mm-hmm. because uh, that policy eventually changed. And then we did start seeing those caskets. It didn't quite have the same uh, effect as it did in Vietnam, though, or during the Vietnam War, because in the Vietnam War, we had maybe four channels, and now we've got 500. And you also just don't, I mean, we don't have the same kind of, news isn't covering that the way news covered that in the 1960s with Vietnam. Yeah. But it doesn't feel like quite the same thing. It feels to me like more of a thing in more modern wars when, as you, you know, these wars are on television in a very different way. It used to be, you know, here's what's happening in Vietnam. And now it's, take a look at this stunning video. Do you yeah, know what right. I mean? I mean, right, it's being right. packaged yeah. in a different way. And the true horror on our side, um, or on the U.S. side, um, was kind of kept from us as far as the flag-draped coffins coming back. That was not, that was not allowed when, when the most recent uh, conflicts began. You can argue about whether or not that's right or wrong, but that certainly feels a lot more like what happened in A Taste of Armageddon, where it's just mm-hmm. sort of like, oh, people are dead now. It's a number. Let's move on. Well, yeah, and it's interesting because, you know, this being on in 1967, of course, no one probably at that time would have even conceived of the way that we package and present war now. <laughs> you know, I, I'm sure that that would have never crossed somebody's mind. Well, um, I mean, it depends on how you I mean, that we would have the kind of access that we would have now. I mean, don't forget. I mean, we had mm-hmm. we had newsreels in, in uh, World War Two. Certainly, mm-hmm. I mean that were very pro America as they should have been. You sure. know, they were very yeah. pro allies as they should have been because at the time we were fighting powers that were trying to take over the world. Right, which is a bit that's a bit different. But even then, I don't, I, I, I doubt. I don't know. It's kind of tough to say. If you had had the same sort of always on twenty four hour access in nineteen forty three, then mm-hmm. you might have had you know somebody saying, "Look at this fascinating." Newsreel <laughs> of <laughs> of people dying in the cold. Um, yeah, I mean, you say you can't imagine it, but I mean, certainly we, we've 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 seen those kinds of things packaged different ways throughout history. We're not just. I don't want to make it sound like I think or or that we think. I don't want to speak for you, but I don't think we're at, suddenly we're at this horrible place where we act this way. I think we're currently at a place where we maybe don't treat it as reverentially as we might. Yeah, but I mean, we've done that before too. Sure. Um, there's another big thing in this episode. We, we've already made uh, at least one parallel to Return of the Archons, mm-hmm. um, but one of the big things we talked about in that, in that episode was uh, blind faith, just sort of not questioning the status quo. And um, I, I thought it was really interesting in this that the the purpose or method of the war here doesn't really matter. It's not our fight in any way. Um, who knows what the origin of the war was, but the residents here are blindly faithful to the computer. Again, they, they are absolutely faithful to what the computer says, so much so to the extent that they sacrifice themselves because of the you know, whatever the final answer is that the computer gives them. Um, and there's another kind of blind faith here, and, and that is the adherence to history. 
which I thought was so interesting. You know, um, every time Kirk argues with Anon 7, Anon says, and, and Maya as well, well, this is the way we've done it for 500 years. This works because mm-hmm. we have been doing it for 500 years. And I've always been kind of knee-jerk skeptical when somebody tells me how much better things were back in the old days, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, that that's just sort of me. And um, uh, so I, I felt that as soon as the characters were saying that in this. Well, but remember, I mean, what what go back 501 years. I mean, mm-hmm. it was apparently just nearly having both of their cultures almost completely decimated that led them to this idea of. Well, what if we just, you know, let's say that I, you know, blew up a city. What would happen? All the people would die. Okay. Well, so let's say I blew up a city then. Oh, okay. So we'll kill other people. Just, you know, so you're going to do that too? I mean, the, the weird thing about it is there were a number of things that I wondered, like, when we're doing this. Are they still fighting, like, with the same weapons, theoretical weapons that they had 500 years ago? Or have they continued to develop weapons? And have they continued to develop defenses? And then does the other planet just have to trust the other planet? See, you're right. you're sort of somewhere on it that I was not. I don't feel like everybody is trusting the computer. This did not feel to me like Landru. Hmm. This felt more to me like the computer is a tool. The computer is used to extrapolate, okay, here I am. I'm a non-7. And as a non-7, I say, it's time for us to bomb Vindicar. So I want to use this. It's like playing Risk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I want to I use this weapon. And so launch that for me and, you know, tell me how it goes. And then so the computer on um, Aminiar talks to the computer on Vindicar 7 and says, okay, well, they just put something here. And maybe the computer on (laughs) Vindicar knows that something was down for repair. And so that was actually a direct hit. Right. I mean, it still feels to me like it's the Aminiars and the Vindicars that are Vindicans. Uh, What was it? It was Aminians. And vindicates, whatever. Anyway, it feels to me like Planet A is actually still pushing the buttons, and Planet B is, you know, pushing buttons back. Yeah. And so it didn't quite feel to me like the whole, well, the computer is fighting the war. It felt like they were fighting their war with the computers. Now, all of that said, um, we're still taking a lot on faith here. <laughs> like, yeah. Okay, so yeah. wait a minute. Let me let me understand. You've actually built a bomb that would like erase everybody for 15 minutes but come back? I mean, it reminds me of when I was a little kid and like I would say, "Well, my car has a rocket." And the kid I was playing with would say, "Well, my car has a rocket." And I'd say, "Well, my car has a shield." And he would say, "Well, my car has a shield too." And I'd be like, yeah. "Well, mine can be invisible." And he'd be like, "Well, mine can be invisible too." And I was like, "Really make up something of your own." I actually right. remember arguing with him. I remember the guy's name. I won't say it in case he's listening. But seriously, <laughs> dude, make up something of your own. So are, are are these planets actually developing better weapons as we go and then feeding that information into the computer and sharing it? And then um, the other thing that I couldn't help thinking was, are they going to get in touch with the, you know, Vindicans? Or are they going to get in touch with Vindicar? And Vindicar is going to be like, really? You guys were still killing yourselves? <laughs> we stopped well, that like 490 years ago. Right. It's, it's all been a game ever since then. Yeah. Because <laughs> like you know, running, it's like playing tic-tac-toe in war games, you know? Right. Because um, it, it occurred to us, we don't actually have to die. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, 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 let's say we did and we don't. Exactly. And laugh yeah. about it later. Well, if you were over here, it would be funny. 
Yeah. Sorry about your one to three million people every year for the last 500 years. Well, well let's think about that. I mean, how, how long do you go before you run out of a population? And, and let's say that this is all on the up and up and, and the people of Iminiar and Vindicar, they actually do this and they actually sacrifice themselves. You get to a point then where who's the last guy left on Iminiar and who's the last guy left on Vindicar? And then they've got to, well, all right, I got a report for the uh, disintegration chamber. So then ultimately the civilization is left behind. Do you assume then that some space-faring society shows up and goes, wow, well, these are really nice buildings. Thanks, <laughs> thanks, Aminiars, for leaving this behind. And then we end up with something like the craters a million mm-hmm. years ago, just like showing up on – a mini R and just you know, boxing the whole thing up and sending it off someplace. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I have a, I have a couple of questions. I'm going to, I'm going to do the whole, um, I think I did this a little bit last week. I'm going to hold, do the whole, uh, dark side of the Federation kind of thing. Okay. Okay. Um, first of all, the prime directive was MIA. I think you might've mentioned this earlier, or maybe you were yeah. going to, and I apologize for jumping the gun on you, but Kirk takes it upon himself to upend both of these societies because he doesn't like the way they're doing it. Now, you could say he's doing that because uh, he doesn't want the Enterprise to be destroyed or the people on the Enterprise to be destroyed. But he seems pretty, you know, hell-bent on making sure that the way that they do things is not the way that they're going to do things going forward. He's going to stop the war. Never mind the fact that if they are, in fact, developing weapons, and, and presumably they've now been able to continue everything else as far as their society. The, the, both of the races have evolved naturally. They've gone ahead and been able to, you know, create art and do, you know, all sorts of things. According to the rules that he set up with the Prime Directive a few episodes ago, this is a thriving, growing society. He has no right to come in and destroy everything. Yeah. And I, yet, I it's much more egregious in this episode than it was in Tiny bit, Archons. yeah. Tiny yeah. bit. And yeah. It also leaves me with the question of wondering, you know, who the inherent good guys are in this episode because um, – there are two things that really start all of this. Well, there's one thing that starts all of it. Ambassador Fox says, I don't care that they have said we cannot come to their planet. We're going to their planet because we need a port in this area. Thousands of lives have been lost over the past few years that would not have been lost had we had diplomatic relations here. We need a port. We're going to get it. He's very colonial. He's not – I mean he, he yeah, might he might yeah. show up and be like, oh, come on. This will work out for everybody. But – He's got a goal, and his goal is what the Federation wants, never mind what these planets want. The other thing, and you you made a joke about this. I don't want to know what the other 23 uh, rules are. We have a General Order 24. We have have like – so let me understand. As the United Federation of Planets, as a a, tree-hugging, peace-loving, can't-we-all-just-get-along organization that's trying to knit something together – uh, if we don't like the way you're doing something, we do have a way to destroy your planet. Right. And we've actually codified it. It's not even like, Scotty, can you come up with a way to do this? Now it's like, oh, Scotty, uh, by the way, destroy the planet. Yeah. Well, uh, to paraphrase Kirk, we're, we're not going to use General Order 24 today. We're mm-hmm. not going to kill today, except when today is today and we actually have to do that. <laughs> <laughs> or decide we have to do that. Duh. Yeah, that, that's a really, really tough one. And, you know, this episode is so challenging and 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 I welcome it. I love it because of its challenges that 
you almost have to start out with the premise that we say, okay, um, well, war is bad. All right. Well, I think we can all kind of be on the same page there about that. Um, but then in terms of what war still exists or, or what violence still exists, there's a, a right way and a wrong way to do it. But like you said, this sort of colonial attitude of, well, our way is the correct way. Your way is the wrong way. Had the Federation never decided to go into this part of space, it would not have mattered one whit to us right. if they had destroyed themselves completely. And like I said, 500 more years go by, we show up, and look, there are a lot of lovely buildings for us to hang out in. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> you know? Yeah, maybe. I'm not sure who the good guys were. I mean, I know we're supposed to think that the Federation is the good guys because it's Star Trek. Mm. And they are. But, I mean, they, they tromped all over the Prime Directive in this yeah. episode. Yeah. But, I mean, also, I mean, you could argue if you want to step out of the out of universe for a second. We've only heard the Prime Directive mentioned once. We don't know how important at this point in this episode, how important that's going to be going forward. So, mm -hmm. you know, it wasn't like we've been it's been drilled into us for two and a half seasons and suddenly they're going to tromp all over it. Right. Yeah. I, I don't think that Kirk's logic really holds up as well here as it did in Return of the Archons. Oh, I agree. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, it, as senseless it's... as senseless and stupid as mm -hmm. these people walking into disintegration chambers is. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, his 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 rationale does not hold up nearly as well here. Right, doesn't seem to me. But I, I love his argument. It, you know, even uh, well, I tell you what, I'll I'll use a Spockism here. I understand, but I don't approve. Yeah, yeah. Um, like we talked about I, earlier. Uh, yeah, yeah. Because I, I I think the same thing here for me anyway applies to Spock or, or applies to Kirk. Um, I, I get it. I really, really do. And, and I think his argument is good. And uh, the, the writing there, just from a production point of view, the writing there is very good. And his delivery, uh, Shatner's delivery of it is very good. There were, there were two things, actually, well, three things that, that hit me in this episode. Um, this is not so much topics. It's just sort of an observation. So it really belongs in the last, um, in the last segment. Mm. Um, Anon Seven. Not really, not really using his head. When um, when Fox and the one other guy come down there, Fox being the ambassador, Fox being someone to whom people answer. Mm -hmm. When Fox and the other guy come down, um, he's thinking, "Okay, well, that'll be two more for the chamber." Not really thinking, right? You know, right. because uh, Fox is in the position of power; he might actually be able to get the other four hundred some odd people uh, up on the ship down to the planet. He's just—I mean—he's just you know. He's thinking nickels and dimes. He really should be thinking about profit potential. <laughs> Seems <laughs> to me. True. Now, on, on a more on a more serious note about that, there were two th or on 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 the episode, there were two things that came away from this to me, or mm -hmm. I came away from this. Um, you've mentioned one of them quite a bit. The first one, war is really just as simple as not fighting. And I mm -hmm. know that sounds overly simplistic, and I will get at least one email. But to me, it is laughable, almost literally, like to the point that I thought Kirk might start laughing. I yeah. know I kind of chuckled a tiny bit when I when I when I revisited what they were doing here. Um, it is almost literally laughable that these two societies decided 500 years ago that the buildings not and all that stuff were going to be fine. You know, they don't want those destroyed, but they need the people killed. Uh, so, you know, we'll figure out how many of us you killed and then we'll kill that many people. That's that's I mean, that's like that's. 
<laughs> that's like a Groucho Marx idea of how war should be fought. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I got off it was uh, there was a little bit of AA. And I think you mentioned it a minute ago when you said the whole thing about we're not going to kill today. Mm-hmm. That's kind of it. We may be, you know, we may be everything that we're afraid that we are. And that's kind of actually an interesting part when a non seven is talking about why they do what they do. He he's he's so hurt by what he sees his race as being. We are barbarians. We are killers. We don't have a better angel of our natures. So this is what we do so that, you know, we can at least have stuff. And so mm-hmm. and so that we might evolve. What we do is we accept the fact that we kill. And they accept the fact that they kill, and so we accept the fact that we have to die. We're just going to do it in a neat and tidy and pretty kind of way. And Kirk's answer is, yeah, you're a barbarian. So you know what you do? Try not to be one today. It's, a, yeah. it's, it's totally one day at a time. It is just, you know, I have decided today that I'm not going to drink. I have yeah. decided today I'm not going to kill anybody. <laughs> and, you yeah. know, hopefully I won't tomorrow. But tomorrow, you know, I'm working on today, and we'll see what happens tomorrow. Sure. Well, I, I love that. I, I love that about this, and I, I love that as kind of one of those big themes that keeps creeping up in Star Trek, that, that we're never, you know, for all, all the talk that we uh, give about Star Trek being a better future, it's still very much us, and all of our faults are still there, and all of our flaws as humans are still there, but we're managing them. You know, we're, mm-hmm. we're trying to be better. We're deciding not to kill, not to be engaged in war, you know. And, and by the way, speaking of the the uh, Amenian idea of uh, war, um, you know, is there something valid there about the idea that the civilization is more valuable than the people within it? This is kind of what I was driving at a minute ago. If we decide mm-hmm. that we want that more than we want to kill the other guy and run the risk of being killed ourselves, yeah, then we pretty much then then it's really not that much of a leap to say so. Maybe we shouldn't kill them and they shouldn't kill us. Yeah, I mean, if you're if you're somebody who you know cares about that kind of thing. Now, when you're talking about terrorist organizations or guerrilla warfare, when you're talking about an idea rather than a nation, I mean, mm-hmm. then then you've got. Then you get another thing that you're dealing with there. But yeah, if you're like, you know, I mean, it was uh, mutually assured destruction is, is thought to be one of the things that kept, you know, the Soviet Union from blowing up the U.S. and vice versa, right? Right. It wasn't right. the only thing, but it's one of the things. We like, you know, we like living. We like breathing and we like having places to live and breathe. So we're not going to roll tanks in on everybody and we're also not going to bomb everybody because while some of us may survive – you know, who we actually are would perish. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I don't know. It's, is is their way of doing it better? Only if they're willing to take the next step and go, okay, well, I like having the buildings here and I like the fact that nothing actually blew up on me, so maybe I just won't go into the disintegration chamber. Maybe we could stop doing that and just, you know, their whole planet's apart, too. You'd really think that that would be enough space. <laughs> right. <laughs> Should we now discuss the messages, morals, and meanings found in A Taste of Armageddon? Or should we just say we did, and assume it went the way we assume it went? 
It's question time here at the old Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. The time when we ask the questions. Hey, John, I got a question for you. Uh oh, there's not going to be any math, is there? There will be no math on this, I promise you. If Vendicar fires a fake rocket, no. <laughs> um, does this episode hold up as far as you're concerned? Uh, starting with uh, the, starting with the production side, let's not do the messages yet. Let's just start with the production. Okay. What do you think? Uh, just from a production side, um, it, you know, watching this one again because uh, this is one that I've seen a lot, and I have to say that like the design of the episode, uh, the special effects, I, I feel like they're kind of bad, and um, that actually took me out of it in many ways. But 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 um, I think the writing kind of saves this. Now, we have this premise that you and I don't necessarily buy. Um, you, you have to take this idea of these planet ha- planets having this kind of warfare with a huge grain of salt. But I think the script is really good. I think the dialogue is really good. So I kind of do love it. Um, it. It is familiar ground. Like it, It's a good parallel, though not exactly the same as Return of the Archons. And I think this is stuff that Star Trek does pretty well. So, um, yeah, I, I'm going to give it a qualified yes, it holds up. How hmm. about you? I would give it a total yes, it holds up. The um, the the disruptor didn't bother me so much. Mm-hmm. I know you had uh, problems with that, and I don't know what other design elements you honestly had a problem with. I mean, oh, it just uh, I mean, like it, it, from the production elements, like the the costumes, the set design. Now that that matte painting is gorgeous. Yeah, you know the, yeah. the exterior. I, I just think that as a yeah, as a studio shot piece of television, eh, the design, it, it sort of took me out of it. But I just – see the thing that brought me back was the writing. Th- this is always going to be a show, I mean, that was produced in the 1960s though. Yeah. You, you yeah. know, so I mean you're going to – I mean uh, you're going to hit times where the design is kind of going to bother you. I mean it seems to me. I actually kind of like the disruptors. I like seeing the different designs of the different um, hand weapons everywhere they go. Mm-hmm. Um, like the one that uh, Pike had in the cage that showed back up in um, What Are Little Girls Made Of. Right. It's, it's kind of neat to see, you know, they can't keep drawing the same laser every week. So it's kind of neat to see, okay, well, this week we uh, we need a new laser. Okay, well, or, you know, whatever it's going to be. Kind of disappointing that there's no, um, you know, beam <laughs> that right. yeah. comes out of it. But maybe yeah. you don't need one. I mean, it was certainly disruptive even without the beam. Well, Ken, can I be very honest with you and our audience? Uh, I'll put it this way. Um, Two-tone jumpsuit in uh, A Taste of Armageddon? No. Two-tone jumpsuit in What Are Little Girls Made Of? Yes. Yes. Uh, I see. I see how you – I know what you're doing there. I know know what you're doing. Yeah, that's fine. Okay. Carry Um, on. Was there? I mean, it's hard to say that there wasn't a message in this one, but um, can you identify it? Um, I think there are a few. Um, I, I, I think uh, the important one here is uh, really summarizing Kirk's speech, that we have these parts of ourselves that we, that we fight, um, that we hold back, and we do try to behave as our better selves. This is a theme that we've come across in Star Trek a few times, mm-hmm. and we decide not to to kill we decide not to have war because we have a choice and all we have to do is live up to that choice 
Now, there are other themes here, and, and that's why I like this episode, because it is provocative in so many other ways. I, I like the idea of exploring the blind faith to the machine. I, uh, I like the idea of you know, exploring the concept of war and the distance that technology creates for us. Um, but I think Kirk really sums it up at the end. And I think to me, that's the message. How about you? Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, 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 I'm a hundred percent behind this episode. I like it a lot. Mm -hmm. It's not my favorite, but, um, it's a, it's a really great episode. I mean, it does, it challenges. And unfortunately it's, it's challenge. I mean, it still challenges us today. Turn on the news tonight at six or six thirty, wherever you happen to live. Well, whatever the national news, whatever time the national news comes on, you will see some things addressed in this episode that are still going on today. So I would say like this this is one of those really great episodes that you can still go back and look at it and think, Oh, wow, kinda like that thing that's happening now. Yeah. Um sadly, but you know but you know, true. Except of course, I mean, people are actually dying. People aren't choosing to die at the end of it. But the whole distance of warfare, I mean that's 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 going on even as we speak in places that we couldn't even spell. Right. Well, hey, let me ask you this. Um, you know, we talked about Kirk's decision to break the Prime Directive and um, force these people into a position that he wanted them to face. Mm -hmm. um, now, did he make the right decision? You know, because I, I, I keep thinking this, you know, his logic is flawed and he violated the Prime Directive and, and all of this stuff. But Kirk's ultimate plan that he reveals to McCoy and to Spock at the end when they're sitting on their bridge it is basically this. He said, look, if I didn't stop this, they would have gone on killing each other. If I did stop this, stop the warfare uh, via computer, then they may have killed each other, but they would not have killed as many uh, potentially um, as they would have by continuing on with the computer. So all Kirk is saying is, I wanted to stop the killing. And I may have stopped it a little bit or I may have stopped it a lot. But his position is is that. Wow. I mean, did he do the right thing? It turns out he did the right thing. But you remember Dr. Strangelove? Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. The whole problem in Dr. Strangelove was that um, the Russians or the Soviets – had mm -hmm. come up with a um, – I can't remember what it was called now, but they basically came up with a machine where if they were attacked at all, they would empty every single thing and every single arsenal they had on the planet. This is the whole right. mutually assured destruction thing. We don't know that Vindicar hasn't come up with one of those. Yeah. I mean when Kirk destroys the computer and the computer is no longer talking to the computer on Vindicar, we don't know that that didn't trigger some failsafe that is going to empty you know, like the contents of a sun – onto a miniar. So yeah, yeah. Um, calculated risk, yes. Assuming an awful lot about the other planet. Assuming mm -hmm. that they have not, in fact, come up with a way to, okay, well, if the Aminians really ever get out of line, um, yeah, we'll, we'll split their planet in half. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> there's... Yeah, so ideally yes except it's really not in keeping with the federation so i mean with the prime directive it's i mean i, I kirk acted on his gut yeah here, right you know and and yay i'm glad it worked out for you <laughs> but, exactly you know exactly here's the problem are you going to fault the episode for for sort of contradicting so much of star trek 
because it's, it's a really great episode. That's the thing. And the decision that he makes, I mean, certainly it's the kind of decision you would hope that somebody would make here. But, you know, here we're trying to live our lives, not, you know, trying to write really good science fiction. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know? Yeah. So, yes, I would say on planet Earth he made the right call. Um, in the Star Trek universe, I mean, it was Kirk's decision, so I guess he made the Kirk call. But I'm not sure um, – yeah, maybe we should really learn a bit more about the Prime Directive before we start tossing it around. <laughs> hey, guys, this is Matt from San Francisco. I'm in my car listening to uh, the Corvine Maneuver podcast, and I just really love the use of the, the term fake until you make it. And just trying to redeem that term, I totally agree with you. That is something that's, uh, that's kind of looked down on, but I think that's what it is. Um, we give our emotions... Too much, uh, too much influence and say, if you don't really feel like it, if you're not doing it without trying or if it's not difficult, then it's not real. But I think uh, in this episode, Kirk really embodies something that's true, which is uh, you believe something and even if you, if you don't want to do it, but you know it's right, that's what you do. And that, and that really is who you are. You are the person who you decide, I don't feel like this. I don't know. I don't know if I even believe it, but I'm going to act like someone who believes this would act because that's who I want to be. And if you do that often enough and long enough, uh, that's who you become. That's that's how we become uh, who we want to be. Thanks for the podcast. I love it, guys. It's great. Uh, and, and thanks for uh, delving deeper into some uh, some really neat ideas. Next week. Let's get out of war for a moment. Let's get out of Armageddon, shall we? And let's check out what's happening on this side of paradise. Some of the music for the mission log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages by Key Theory, free to download at K. I theory.com By my reckoning, when we reach the end of the mission log series, we will have solved all of the problems and dilemmas plaguing the planet. So, let's assume that that is the case. Go outside and play. And transmission. Now leaving Nerdist.com.